Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Divi Srivastava, CEO and founder of Paladin Drones. Paladin Drones is a startup building a custom drone hardware and software solution for cities to be able to respond to emergencies faster and with better data. And their mission is to deploy autonomous drones to 911 calls. Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. I'm here today with Divi from Paladin, a really interesting company changing their drone space. So welcome to the podcast, Divi. Take us to the future. What it would look like when you guys are really successful. Ed, thanks for having me on the call. The future for us means that every single city across the world has an autonomous drone that automatically gets deployed in the case of any emergency. If there is a car crash, if there is a fire, if um, someone is, uh, is hurt in any way, shape or form, that's the future that we're building towards because First responders, such as firefighters, police officers, EMS, when they arrive on scene to an emergency today, they have very little information on what is actually happening. And that information is critical for them to help save lives and keep everybody safe. Because if you look at a, uh, a fire, a fire doubles in size every 30 seconds. That's very difficult to imagine because... Our brains aren't used to exponential thinking. But what that means is within two to three minutes, a, a fire in the corner of a room could engulf that entire room very, very quickly. And when every single second counts and you're not entirely sure what you're about to walk into, not that it's anyone's fault, it's just the way it is. That information is the difference between life and death. Yeah. Yeah, I could imagine that. Like how many lives will be saved if we have like widely deployable drones in every city, in every place? Yeah, could imagine that. And where you guys are today and what point of the company you are today? We're at the point in the company where we're in several cities already doing this. So we're based out of the United States. We are in, we're in several states already responding to hundreds of emergencies every single week. And we are already seeing some of these early successes where we are able to respond to car crashes, where we are able to respond to 911 calls, where we are seeing the difference having a drone unit, essentially, that is responding to calls for help has in the daily infrastructure of, of cities, of fire departments, of police departments. And we're excited to just and, keep and just that. Not only having the information before they get there, but also keep getting the information while they are there. I imagine that would be important as well because the field of view is different when you look at from the above would give them like real time information that they would do not have otherwise. Because it, exactly. there's exactly. some things that you can see only from a vantage point, right? Yeah, exactly. Take, for example, a brush fire which is unfortunately very common in dry areas. It's very common in California. 
and across the world, when you have a brush fire, there's already training, you know, all firefighters go through rigorous training to be able to handle these situations. And unless they have a helicopter unit, they're very much relying on what they can see from their vantage point. Now, when we have been to brush fires with the drone, we immediately see exactly the area of the fire. We see where the edges are spreading faster, where they're slower. And that information is sent to other firefighters who can now use that to better combat and keep everybody else safe. That's a vantage point that usually only very big cities with multiple millions of dollars in helicopter budgets would be able to get. And even then, who knows what the response time would be because helicopters take time. There's a lot of maintenance that is involved. There is a lot of fuel just getting things spun up. With a drone, we've we've seen that we can get there usually within 90 seconds. I have been deployed as well for like searching for missing people like in, in terrains like mountains and things like that. In what types of terrains, sorry? Like mountain forest and mountains and things like that. Like people get lost. And I think that people tend to use helicopters a lot for that as well, right? Drones are being used. That's, I think, one of their primary functions today to help in search and rescue missions. A lot of police and and fire departments across the country uh, have used uh, great, great products from a lot of different companies to do exactly that. And when we see those stories, those wins, it's, um, it's, it's a win for the industry because we're, we're proving that whether autonomous or not, drones are having a real impact on real emergencies, on real situations. And where we want to see that go is we only want to add to that. Why can we not make that ubiquitous across everywhere? Why, why can't we make these resources available for everybody and it's fine and and do the heavy lifting ourselves because when it comes to an emergency they're they're the ones who are doing the heavy lifting for us right i'm i'm not a firefighter i'm not a police officer that's something that i can only help with or like because when the emergency comes they're they're the guys that that we call when you call 911 that's who's responding one way or another so i think it's the least I can do the least the drone industry can do to help and, and, and really listen and try to build something that will help their day-to-day operations. And how did it start? Like where the idea, the idea came from? Like how did you end up doing this? Yeah. So just a little bit of background on me. I was born in India. I moved to the United States when I was very young. I think either five or six years old. And I spent most of my life growing up in the state of Ohio. Ohio is known for not a lot of things happen there. It's a great place to grow up. I grew up uh, about 25 minutes north of Columbus, which is our capital, and this um, town of Lewis Center, Ohio. In 2016, I had graduated high school. I was about to start college, was very excited, going to Berkeley for engineering. And that summer in 2016, one of our family friends' houses burnt down. I don't know if you know much about, well, <laughs> when you live in a community like that where everybody is super tight-knit, uh, especially when everybody is basically immigrants, it's, it has a massive effect. And that incident just led me to start talking to my local fire chief, Chief Noble. 
And he told me two things that have been kind of a North Star for Paladin ever since 2016. The first thing he told me was that a fire doubles in size every 30 seconds. The second thing he told me was that first responders never have enough information when they arrive on scene. This is because when someone is calling 911, asking for help in an emergency situation, they're probably panicking. All they see is a massive fire that's about, that's about to kill them or is about to harm somebody that they love or they were driving by the highway and they just happened to see something off the side, but they're not trained to know that the fire is a, in a two-story residential building. It's a two-alarm, three-alarm fire where the egress points are, what the surrounding vegetation is like, what the surrounding traffic is like, and how best to convey that information to the first responders. It's nobody's fault. It's just the way the system works today and it keeps people safe. But when I went to Berkeley, unfortunately was in the middle of another fire. One of our college campus churches burned down my first semester there. And that was, I kept talking to more firefighters and they said the exact same thing, a lack of situational awareness. They arrive on scene and they're trained to deal with these situations but it would be really helpful if they had just a little bit more information. So I started thinking, I, I knew how to fly drones. Uh, well, not fly, I was crashing them, um, but I also <laughs> knew how to code a little bit. And I came up with this idea of, well, if there isn't enough information, I know that drones can fly, drones have cameras on them, and drones can fly in a straight line without needing to worry about traffic. So what if every single time there was an emergency where everybody, every single time someone called 911, an emergency number, what if we could have a drone on scene first? And what if the video from that drone for that specific emergency was spent, sent to the first responders, to the firefighters, to the police officers, who, whoever was going there to help? Could it change things? Could it at least be another tool for them? And in 2018, I dropped out to found Paladin and start working on it full time. That summer, we went through Y Combinator, which is, um, I think, the world's best startup accelerator, had some great mentors, and we started deploying with our first city. We raised a small pre-seed round towards the end of 2018. I moved to Texas because that's where our first client ended up being. And since then, we've now responded to over 2,200 emergencies. We're responding to hundreds of emergencies each week. We're live in several cities. We're live in several states. And we're starting to see, starting to see this hypothesis become a reality that, okay, if you do have a drone system in these cities responding specifically to emergencies, specifically somebody asking, calling for help, um, fire alarms, commercial alarms, things like that we can really help change operations. We can really help make a difference. And that's, I think, what's been the most exciting part so far. Tell me a little bit about the first customer in Texas, like how, how that story turned out, like like how you, how you got this first customer there and, and moving there <laughs> yeah. as well. Like what, this is an interesting story. <laughs> yeah. Our first official users were Memorial Villages. Uh, it's a small suburban area outside of Houston, Texas. And uh, we were introduced just through a, uh, actually one of our investors uh, had set up lots of meetings because 
they were from Texas and we met the chief and the chief of, of that department how was a real believer in using technology to, to aid in their operations. And he, I think one of our first conversations, he was like, you know, this is actually something that I've wanted. I think this is something that can change our operations. And we just started working. I, I took some advice from, I think, Airbnb, the founding story always has a lot of impact when you first hear it and then see how well they've executed on it. They moved to New York because that's where their first clients were. And even when I was starting the company, I was spending 80 hours a week at a fire station just with the firefighters trying to understand what happens during their day to day. What happens when they go to a call? I was writing along. I was writing code while they, while we were all eating. Well, not while we were all eating lunch and dinner, but in between. And I wanted to keep doing that. So I moved to, to Houston because I wanted to be right there next to the user. And uh, we had our, our first product. It was a, uh, I was essentially, uh, I was taking off the shelf drones. I was adding our software on them. One of the first things I had learned when I started the company was that there are lots of great drones out there. There really are. DJI is one of the biggest names, the biggest name in the drone industry, and they build phenomenal products for manual use cases. They have great drones and they, they fly really well. Their biggest limitations were their range, where most drones have a one-to-one connection, meaning you have a remote controller and that remote controller has some sort of RF, Wi-Fi, proprietary communication tech that goes directly to the drone, which is great for manual use case. But if you are in the middle of a city or even a middle of a, of a small town where you have trees around you, you have buildings, you have Wi-Fi signals, you have LTE signals, microwaves, all sorts of interference, even with the best technology, if you send that drone a mile away, you'll lose connection. Now you won't lose connection if you're, you know, in the middle of a desert or you're out in the ocean and stuff like that. You're able to maintain that connection, but that doesn't work. So the first thing I did was I took these off the shelf drones and I essentially duct taped a phone to them, found a way to make them work off of LTE. <laughs> and that worked. It worked. It worked really well. It worked well enough to get us our, our first user because we were able to send a drone one mile, two mile, three miles away. Oh, this is without... I was about to I was about to ask you about that because I, I fly drones and then <laughs> one of the things that happens to me a lot is like losing the signal. Then it was like how how would you dispatch the drones? Because they they, they advertise that they can go like four kilometers, five, twelve, ten, eight, but like after one kilometer it's just saying now drops in real situation with trees and tall buildings and things like that we're not like able to you don't most drones don't have enough range mostly so what you guys do it's like the drone has like direct signal like direct there they have their own like lte connection yeah so that, that was our, that was our first product so we started oh. with we took off the shelf drones and i quite literally we were i was taking apart controllers um duct taping things on onto the drone and it worked we we had um i built out a control system using just lte 
so was able to get video feed with, with um, back in 2018, the latency wasn't the best. We were getting, I think the best from 2018 to about 2020 was about two seconds, one and a half to two seconds, which was okay, but it wasn't the greatest. And we were able to, I was able to control the drone from anywhere. Uh, didn't have range, what, what our officers now call range anxiety. Didn't have to worry about how far you were sending it. <laughs> But it, it worked. Like the proof of concept, essentially, it, it did work. We and we were deploying; it, it was working. What wasn't working were the off-the-shelf drones, because they just weren't built for that use case. In that, I was quite literally having to like, like work my way around the existing SDKs, which are the existing technologies and software kits that a lot of these drones provide. And like I said, they're great for manual use. They're great for the purpose that they're built for. But some, we would get quite literally an error in the SDK. And we would look at the logs and it would say, you know, SDK error, contact us for support. And then the support would take three to six months. And that was just not a very viable yeah. solution. Yeah, I was researching it like one week ago about how to code and, and like from like commercial drones, like the DJI ones that I have a, a new DJI Mini 3 Pro. And was Great like, let me try to see if I, if I can like code these things. Great. Yeah, it works quite well. I was like, let me see if I can like actually code for this thing. And it's not straightforward. It's harder than I thought. I was expecting it to be like easy, like some type of like library that you just connect. And no, it's like a lot of headache to do it. So I just like decided not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think what well, credit where credit is due, DJI has built a really great SDK. Like you can, after spending some time to it, you can develop a lot of very advanced applications and they continue to innovate, which is great. It's just the, given how big of a company they are, it's difficult to have that one-on-one -on -one support that you really need when you're developing uh, a, a very critical product. And especially it's when... They're focused, right? It's not like exactly. very specific... It's not their focus. Like they are much more, they seem to be much more focused on like the photo and video type of thing industry. A lot of, a lot of things seems to be around that like space, right? A lot of the yeah, film yeah. and, 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 and video industry. Yeah. They, and they're great at it. They really are. The issues that we would face would be like, we would be testing our drones because we would, we, before we put anything in the hands of a user, we would try to crash it ourselves. You know, any sort of new software patch, we're going to try to crash the drone um, above an open area. And we we were getting crashes more often than we were comfortable with. It was just uh, because the errors that we were receiving, we had no easy way to debug them. It was a little bit of a black box for our use case. And we were just, you know, it, it wasn't working the way we really wanted it to work. The the SDK, as great as it was, wasn't really built for what we were doing. Um, so in late, I don't know, right around pandemic season, actually, like right around when the pandemic wasn't in, in its early stages of starting, I, I made the decision to continue supporting DJI drones. And to this day, we actually fully integrate with them. Our software all works with them. We're just no longer taping phones, if you will. <laughs> but I, I decided to start building, out of necessity, a drone around our LTE control. Because I I, I looked, I, I talked to a lot of other friends in, in the industry, wanted to see if there was another drone that I could start building off of. You know, I was never too interested in 
building necessarily a hardware product, but this was a very real problem that needed solving ASAP. And every single day that we weren't solving it, it felt like we were moving backwards. So decided to build a drone right around our LTE. That took us uh, several months, but it, it, I think it paid off because through that, we have our own drone built by us, uses our LTE connection. We're getting close to close to about an hour with flight time on it with our own payload. And we're now we're deploying that drone. It's it's live, it's live across cities. And we're able to have full control of the platform. So if there are issues, like we're we're able to more easily diagnose them and see what's going on and, and build, I think, a better product. And we're excited to just keep going on that while while still supporting other drones as best as we can, because departments have a lot of different drones that they're using. And it doesn't make sense for us to say like, hey, you know, all the technology that you've invested in over the last five years, forget it. No, that, that doesn't work. But here's something that will augment your operations even more. But how does it work when, when you have like, uh, let's say you're talking to a station, they already have drones, like what you provide them? The software that connects with the calling, the LTE control, like how, how does it work if one already have some drones there? So if, if there are already drones that exist uh, that departments have, have bought, we can integrate with them, meaning we have our streaming. Uh, you, you can stream all the video f- from that drone to as many users as you want uh, with, with like less than 300 milliseconds of latency and you have uh, you still have autonomous controls in that all you need to do is type in an address through our uh, web interface called watchtower and you hit start and the drone will take off and it'll go to that scene you don't need to control it the limitations with other drones will be that you are limited by the range of the controller oh, meaning that you, you don't you don't want you don't want you will the drone will go as far as it can, but the minute you lose signal, there's you know there, there's not much that we can do on our side. But we make that option available while still providing Nighthawk, which does have the full unlimited range. It's built specifically for first responders. It's built specifically to respond to 911 calls. It's a culmination, if you will, of everything we've done on the LTE space, our experience working with these departments or experience working with the FAA, the regulatory authorities and building a product that, that is live. It's, it's out there. It's working. And tell me a little bit more about uh, what surprised you the most after you started the company? Like what was the most unexpected thing that you learned from this journey or what, what things were different from what we were thinking about discover after you started? I don't know if there's one that pops out, but among several, one is that people want to help. People really, in my experience at least, and I've had a great experience, if you reach out to people with genuine purpose and, and you have a direct, hey, I need help with this, this, or this, they really are willing to help, especially when it's something that a conversation can help. For, for example, if you're starting a company, and I'd be curious to know what your experience was like. But for me, I, I was very much, okay, I, I want to build something. I want to get it out there because I see a use case. But what does it actually mean? Like, what are like, 
the documents? <laughs> like, do I need a lawyer? Do it like, do I, what, what are the different things I need to worry, worry about or not worry about? Am I overthinking things? Some of those, a lot of that is once you started a company that a lot of that becomes common knowledge or like, okay, you know what to do and what not to do. But when you're starting out, it's like, I, I don't know. So by asking for help, by just literally being, and I was, you know, I was fortunate to be uh, at the, when I was starting a company, I was uh, in college where, with a great startup ecosystem, met a lot of uh, other founders through that, that they were able to help me out. But even as the company has kept growing and progressing, as new challenges occur, I reach out and I'm consistently met with truly helpful advice. And I think it's not something that I was necessarily not expecting, but it was just, it was a very pleasant surprise and reminder that there are people that want to see you succeed. There are people that will genuinely help and they will, I've had, I I can't count like when, uh, you know, I think in startup land, you'll often hear the word uh, putting out fires or you've got 15 fires going on and you need to douse them as quickly as you can. And during those times I've, been fortunate enough to have friends, uh, to have mentors who will drop everything to help, even if that means like a a 30 minute hour long call. And that is amazing. It's amazing to have that support. Yeah. I think that this this surprised me quite, quite a lot as well. After I started my company, like how many people actually help and just, (laughs) just help just, just spend their time, like mentoring you, how many like more experienced and, successful people that have helped me out of just helping like people that you would think that why would that person spend their time with me or help me whatsoever because I'm nobody and just starting and they still do though because probably someone along the way did the same for them so it's the thing that keeps reinforcing itself I think and yeah. and what what people tend to get wrong about what you guys are doing? Like when I explain to investors, customers, people, new hires, like what people tend to don't get about what you're doing or the most common like misconception that you see that you can, that you need to explain most of the time. I think the biggest thing is the need for what we're doing because most people are not firefighters. They're not police officers. Thankfully, they haven't had to deal with these emergency situations. So it's, and it was difficult for me to conceptualize as well that when an emergency happens, what, like, how, how could they not have information, right? Like someone's calling them, right? Like you're, you're, you're calling on the phone. So how, how can they not know that? So, but all of that changes when, I mean, we just do a demo of our product and we say like, listen, this is exactly what it does. It takes off, it gets there. Um, it does its thing. And, and that's thankfully that that was more of maybe more of a that was more relevant towards the beginning of the company. I think what now is more relevant now because, you know, things change are, are the regulatory concerns where <laughs> people don't really believe us when we tell them that we've we have waivers like we're flying legally we're yeah. we're not doing anything crazy here this this is you know it's by the book where we're getting approved and um then they're like oh yeah show me the documents and we're like all right well here's our waiver <laughs> here's our waiver here's the proof because i think a lot of people still think that the drone industry now the drone industry has been it's been slow to take off it really has been there's no denying that aside from the consumer side which has just been exploding which is great because it means that the technology is, is definitely reaching 
different stages of maturity. On the commercial side, things have been a lot, pretty slow for a lot of years. Uh, there have been a lot of a lot of false starts, if you will, and that's made a lot of people just be like, "Yeah, you know, this maybe this isn't taking off." But I, I think when we see that, yeah, we are we are getting waivers, we are getting yeses from cities where budgets are being approved for this type of stuff. Like that, I think is real. That's not oh, we're building a product, we're hoping for these customers, etc. Here and there. No, this is this is happening today. This is live today. These are actual emergencies that drones are being deployed to that our drones are being deployed to and we're starting we're, we're finally starting to see things change and i think that's really exciting and on the go-to-market side how it is to sell to like departments and things like how this even work like how how do you guys go about like selling it and deploying it tell me a little bit more about the go-to-market or anything like that yeah, the so we sell directly to the cities. So we sell to the fire department, the police department. And our process is we try to understand the customer. Like I I know people say that all the time, but it it really you, you cannot sell a single product to a single firefighter to a single police officer unless you truly understand what it is what their pain points are. So what has worked for us is we were we were very fortunate to have our first client in Texas take us on. As we were successful with that client, they started introducing us to other cities. Other cities started coming to them and saying like, hey, we heard that you guys are doing this. Is that actually, is that a thing? Is it real? And having them say that, yeah, this this is real. Then they come to us and be like, hey, we actually, we checked you out. You know, you're being used by by another city and that's massive because now there's the trust that this is actually a product that works. So we we very much rely on on that word word of mouth and building a product that people are actually going to use. I think the Paladin's philosophy that I you know that that I think every team member believes in is being there, like be on site, understand what is actually happening as you're deploying, because that's the only way to build a really great product. And if you have a great product and you found at least one success point, it means you can repeat it. So yeah, we're in the process of repeating that right. The process of like the buying process of that, like each city or department has its own or it's like there's a standard across the U.S. or there are some standards across the U.S. So there are there are some fairly standard contracting agreements or just buying procedures, especially when you're selling to government. Like these are not new things that people have been selling to government for a very long time. What's important to understand is who who is going to be that champion for you who is going to be the actual user knowing the decision maker understanding that you are talking to them specifically and making sure that again you are addressing their pain points today because the the buying process is paperwork and that paperwork exists there are several different ways of going about it but when you have already gotten maybe like an internal yes or an internal champion who's pushing on your behalf, because they actually see the vision, they actually see that this will be useful for them and their city. That makes the entire process much, much faster. Okay, got it. And when you think about like starting a deep tech company, if you may, so could you give some advice to someone that's starting a deep tech company? Like, what would be your advice? It's very difficult to start a deep tech company without being willing to dive in deep on the technical side, <laughs> meaning 
if there are things that you don't know, do not be afraid to Google it, to YouTube it, to figure out how to solve those problems yourself, especially if you're a founder. And again, this is obviously based off of my story. Everybody has had different experiences. But if you're looking to start a deep tech company, understand what the tech is that you're trying to build. And, and But even more importantly, make sure that you're actually solving a, a use case. Make sure there's an actual problem to solve. Because you can build the most incredible technology. You can, build, you can be incredibly technical and build a really great product. But if, if that product isn't really solving anything, it's going to be very difficult to get it off the ground. So as you're starting specifically for deep tech, definitely make sure that you're willing to actually put in the coding, the embedded, whatever it is, like learn, just learn. There's a lot of resources out there that are freely available. Most of the stuff I know today, admittedly, is through YouTube. It's through YouTube, it's through Stack Overflow, is through like online resources that I find. But for a company as a whole, make sure there's a problem that you are solving and be very honest about whether you are solving that problem or not good cool and what about raising capital there's <laughs> anything that you learn about on that side for deep tech because there's that there's a lot of incremental risk and other problems that you need to explain out to investors when you're talking about something that's more complex like like what you're doing first like products take more time to be built there's other variables around it's just not it's simply harder, basically. Yeah, it, it definitely is a lot harder because just math-wise, you know, if there are a thousand venture capitalists, for example, across the world who invest in all things, when you start building deep tech or embedded tech or anything hardware-related, that that funnel itself narrows significantly. So you're climbing an uphill battle. But as with any fundraise, the biggest thing is just don't give up. If you as the founder, if you and your team are hellbent on something like, and you are confident that it is something that will take off or is already taking off, spend time pitching that to your grandma. If you can explain Good. it to your grandma, you can probably explain it to an investor. To, yeah. But, but don't just don't give up. You'll, you'll, you'll hear thousands of no's, but all the no's, the no's do not matter. The yeses do. Yeah, makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Well, would and you add anything to that? I think so. Yeah. When I, when I, when I remember like raising and thinking about that, like just the asymmetry that most founders when they are starting, like I did, didn't think about is that how asymmetric the process is, because oh, yeah. in the end, just one just one yes one yes is what you need. So yeah. like one yes is worth a thousand no's. It's yeah. completely symmetric. Like we, it's hard to put your head when you're starting. Like it's like no, a no is not worth the same as a as a yes. Like the yes is worth so much more because you don't need like ten yeses to let's say to pad ten no's. You just need one to pad one thousand no's. So it's it's strange dynamic when you think about that, right? <laughs> yep. So no, it's uh, uh, it, yeah. <laughs> so don't give up. Complete. Yeah, it's a completely asymmetric process. And thinking about the state of of drones right now and what you guys are doing, what do you think is next for you guys? Like, what's the next challenge and what what you guys are thinking as the next like big thing or big step for you? 
Yeah, I, I think, and we touched on, you touched on this a little bit, uh, which was kind of the go to market because right now we, we've got, we've just started to hit the double digits in terms of drones that are actually deployed. So we're very, very early on. But the goal is how do we get to triple digits by the end of this year? And we have seen that the word of mouth definitely works. Like every single time we launch a new city, we get anywhere from uh, four to 12 inbounds within one to two weeks. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, oh, yes, we're immediately going to get those. It's still a process to get them. But it's figuring out what's working and we're still at the early ends of that. Another thing for us is looking at existing channels. So selling to government, like I said, is not a new concept. In fact, selling drones to governments, that's not a new concept at all. There are lots of companies who have successfully done that. DJI's entire enterprise on the government side is built off of that type of business model. So we're also... We're, we're looking at the exact same thing. There are lots of distribution channels that already have access to the decision makers. They have access to the people who make the budget. So if we can find a way to work with them, the goal is to get this out as quickly as possible because the challenges before, like last year, the challenges used to be around three things. The challenges were, what is the state of the technology? Like, are, are we, is it safe? Are we consistently flying, not losing connection? Do we have a good camera feed? Do we have a good payload? The second thing was operationally, how is this actually going to work? Because if we go to a city that's either just started their drone program, doesn't have a drone program, or even has a very advanced drone program, you need to understand what their daily response looks like. But you also need to understand like, okay, like find a way to see if what you have done in the past can be applied. So need to have that operational experience. And third was regulations. It was uh, two two years ago, we were just starting to get our first couple of waivers. And even then, we weren't sure that it was a repeatable process. We weren't sure that we would be able to get this in every single city. We're proving that now. It is happening. We're, <laughs> we've got a lot of cities that we're rolling out over the next um, couple of months, which will be a lot of firsts. One of our biggest firsts that's public now is in um, Elizabeth, one of our newest cities that is up and deploying, we were awarded the first ever beyond visual line of sight waiver in restricted airspace, specifically class Bravo. That class B airspace is the airspace around airports. And we got this right next to EWR, which is one of the largest international airports. It's, if you're flying internationally, you're probably either flying out of JFK or EWR off of the East Coast. Yeah. So very complicated airspace, but we have that waiver. We're flying today in that airspace safely, successfully, and, and having wins. And this is just the beginning. Yeah, I, th- I think that the go-to-market would be would be the next thing as well. In New York case, the faster you go, like you can put like this for you and your team when you think about it, the faster you go, probably the faster you're going to be saving lives in the, in the long term because the faster it's deployed, the faster... First responders will have the information and the faster they have it, there'll be a good chance that we're going to be saving some lives. Great. Great. So I have like two final questions to wrap up. First, do you have any book, movie, TV show recommendation for us? (laughs) Specifically for startups or just in general? Anything. Anything. Well, if if you haven't seen it, I, I recently watched Top Gun Maverick. 
in theaters. And I haven't had a movie experience like that in a very long time. I thought it was one of the most entertaining movies put out there. Yeah, I was quite surprised by that. I went with my girlfriend. And yeah. She liked it a lot. And I liked it a lot. You know? I was quite surprised because I have seen the first. Like, the first was not bad. Yeah, it was all right. It was not that good. It was all right. Like, I yeah. think it would, it would go in history to those that list of where the sequel is better than the original, which is a real yeah. tiny list. Like, maybe like Terminator, where I have like Terminator <laughs> 2, it's better than Terminator 1. Like, maybe this, maybe arguably Star Wars, where like the Godfather, Empire Strikes Backs, Empire Strikes Backs better, the second's better than the first. Godfather as well is another one that comes to mind that the second is better. The first is great as well. Godfather is a tough one because the first it's, is it really well. is. So, it's, it's is funny. My, my girlfriend said the same thing. She, I was like, we have to, we, we got to watch it in a movie theater. Like you can't, like this is not something you should just like watch on the TV. And she's like, oh, you're a movie geek. I'm not going to do that. And then, and then she went. And she was like, "All right, yeah, it was worth it. It was great. Yeah, it was <laughs> it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Surprisingly good. That actually was a surprisingly great movie. Yeah. yeah. And the second question is like, if you were able to send one message to everybody on Earth, what it would be? When things seem hopeless or things don't seem great, just um, remember that you are breathing, and Oh. Watch your breath, and chances are it'll be okay. How oh, great! Great final message. I like it. I'll try to remember it myself. Actually, it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Divi. It was great to have you at the, the show. I hope that in a year or so we have you again to like just update us and everything drone related. It was great. Thanks for having me, Ed. This was uh, this was great. Thanks for listening to The Deep Tech Show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.